in a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah, pure wild flight. Get it down, yeah. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron. We both do. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker, and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it, swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy, specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So, the equipment is top-of-the-line kick-ass stuff, as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com, and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah! Straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. And this is the first one from Finland, the new setup now no longer in the sandbox. And starting out with a complete and total rock star that I've been trying to get on the podcast for quite a while now. Tell me, who the fuck are you and what do you do? 
<laughs> what up? My name is Maxine Tate. I am blessed to be able to do what I love for a living as a full-time skydiver. I am a demo jumper. I am a canopy coach and I wouldn't be doing anything else. That's fantastic. And you and I have not seen each other in a very long time. Goodness. No, it's been forever. I think you and I met the first time I made it out to Dubai, Yep. which from memory, I think was 2013. It was my first ever international swooping competition. Was that really? And yeah, it was because um, I started swooping. I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I started swooping in 2011 competitively and I made the British team in 2013. And that was my first trip out was for DIPC in 2013. It was uh, quite the spot, huh? cool. It was. It was. Uh, it was a pretty awesome place to start my uh, international swooping career. Well, and yeah. I got out there, and it was my birthday. In fact, the first day we made it to the drop zone, and my teammate Martin Reynolds hooked me up with a trip up in a Huey for a cheeky little hop and pop to celebrate <laughs> my birthday and go check out those skyscrapers. So that was an amazing way to start my trip to Dubai. Yeah, that's a hell of a way to get the initiation into, yeah. into the Dubai drop zone. And 2013, yeah, yeah. that would have been, um, was it the DIPC or was that the um, the um, Mondial? It wasn't Mondial. Mondial was 2012. No, Mondial. Yeah, exactly. No, the 2013 was, was the DIPC. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, because uh, uh, I had just started flying there not that long before. So we were both pretty new to the sandbox back then. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I seem to remember you and it, we went to... I can't remember how we met, but we 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 went we were off in your car, and we went to some some concert gig or something. It might well have been the opening ceremony. I don't remember. Yeah, it was the opening ceremonies. That's right. Yeah. We did the opening ceremonies, and then I think we did a, a little bit of bar hopping on the way back. Yeah, fun times. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good to see you again, friend. Good to yeah, see you again, and you as well. Now, so uh, as per usual with the podcast, let's jump you all the way back. I want to know how you got started, not necessarily just in skydiving, but in anything extreme. Well, yeah, that's interesting, actually. I, it's so nice doing these things because I get a chance to reflect like I haven't done for a long time. So sure. if you want to go way, way back, I, I guess my I've been doing sports at least on a competitive level since I was literally a kid. And uh, it started at the age of five when I learned how to ride horses. So if you want to start there, that was a not a lot of people know that. Um, All right. For some reason, I guess I was really into the idea of riding horses. You know what it's like when you're a kid, you know, sure. shiny things. I want to do that. And my folks have always been amazing at being able to support anything that me and my sister wanted to do. And so mm. I started riding horses and that and my sister, too. And that became a really huge part of my life. Um, and so I actually competed in horse riding. It's my very first sport. Wow. Um, my, my family actually moved to Portugal when I was eight years old. I've been riding for several years. And uh, it was the new thing out there. So I, we got hooked up with a stable and I was allowed to go and ride everybody's horses. There's a bunch of expats there. They all had horses. So I had like the run of the stable and I competed uh, at a very high level. In fact, up to national level when I was a kid. So that really? was the first thing I ever did. Yeah. Now, what what kind of I, I only know very, very little about uh, uh, horse riding, but was it what dressage? Is that what they call it? Uh, I hated dressage. <laughs> I like to go fast. You know how I roll. So the idea of doing something <laughs> disciplined like that was so boring. But yeah, there was there was two things I guess I competed in. My favorite was show jumping. So going over the jumps. Okay. And, yeah. You know, against the clock. No surprise there. That was my favorite. And uh, then we do things for the three day eventing, which is basically cross country, which is balls to the wall. Love that stuff too. And then the dressage, which I was kind of bad at. And then the show jumping. So 
yeah, it was one hell of a way to to grow up. Actually, I mean, I literally lived in uh, on the stables for years of my life as a kid. Teaches you an awful lot, though, doesn't it? I mean, especially when you're working with big animals like that, you have to learn how oh, to God. navigate safely, so to speak. Totally, it's like working in in a team, and the team is you and the horse, you right? Know? And it's uh it's a it's a it's a relationship that's built on trust and sure. generosity and patience. And uh, yeah, I loved it. Do you think that's beautiful out there in Portugal as well? Like we used to ride on the sand dunes in the forests and go, what a way to grow up. It was, it was such a gift. Sounds fucking horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that was my very, very first sport that I ever did. And uh, my family was out in Portugal probably until I think it was um, till I was about 12 years old. And then we had to come back to the UK and I, and I continued to, to jump all the way up through university and I competed for my university, which is the London School of Economics and University of London. And then I stopped uh, riding really from about 21 because I went to work in the city and, and I, that I was done with that. But from the age of like literally five to 21, I was I, I lived my life on horseback. Oh, nice. So now you, you just mentioned university. What were you going to be when you grew up? Uh, well, I guess I, I was what I wanted to be when I grew up for a while until I discovered skydiving, but um, I, I did an economics degree at the London School of Economics. And then I joined one of the big uh, business consultancy and accountancy firms. And, uh, I'm the, I was the British equivalent of a CPA and, really? uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, then I became a finance director and as chief operating officer. So I have a big finance and, and corporate background I in the fu- city and the, in the film and television industry before I became a skydiver. Really? Yeah. I yep. fucking love the backstories. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's these kick-ass uh, superhero backstories, but they turn out to be your friends. And I never know when I ask that question, what the hell is coming? So I would have never pegged you as a CPA ever. So yeah. to, that's that's a, a quite a leap to go, no pun intended, quite a leap to go from that to professional skydiving. Well, yeah, I guess it was. And it was, it's interesting because so the, but my, my, my massive pivot, I guess you could say from working in London to becoming a full-time skydiver came uh, as a result of, well, my first interaction with skydiving was while I was at university. Like this is back in the late eighties. And there's a bunch of people we know that were part of this, this time as well, like Regan, Tetlow, Mark Kirby. Yeah. These are all people that were back in the UK at this time. And it, the big thing to do, and we're all similar age, believe it or not. <laughs> and, uh, <we're, laughs> I don't think I can get away with that anymore. Um, yeah. We're we're at the age where at uh, in the late 80s, you could, you know, raise a bunch of money and go down to the drop zone and make a jump, like a charity jump, you know? Sure. So being the person who was big into sports, and I did all sorts of other sports when I was a kid too, field hockey, netball, whatever. I was definitely the sports person. I'm like, I'm into it. I want to go you know, do this skydive. My dad was a commercial pilot. That's another story in the mm. in the fleet air arm Navy pilot. So I, ha- I definitely had that background. Um, I'm like, I'm into it. I want to go do this charity skydive. So, uh, you know, I raised my money and I went down to the drop zone, which was headcorn in the UK. And this is like, I think it was probably 1989, something mm. like that. So I was, you know, 19 years old or something like that. And uh, it was uh, basically this charity skydive was a static line jump on a big ass military round <laughs> you know yeah you're laughing you know what i mean good yep. grief you know but it's not this is not modern technology you know what i'm saying this is no. old school i have so much respect for airborne my god <laughs> yeah. anyway 
So, you know, I got trained. I did a million and one PLFs on one of those pulley things. And and the bottom line was it the weather was bad or there was some reason why we couldn't jump, you know, and I must have made six or seven trips down to the drop zone down in Kent to try and make this freaking skydive. And then, and I only remembered this the other day when I was on another podcast, there was a fatality there when oh. I was waiting to do my skydive. And um, I, th- I think it was some poor woman landed and, and got picked up in Augusta and into a, into a taxiing plane. I mean, Oy. it's a hardcore. Yeah, really bad, right? Yeah. And I'd forgotten about that until recently. Anyway, they shut down the headcorn, and I don't remember for how long. It might have been a couple of months. Or, I don't know, whatever it was. It's a long time ago now, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, anyway, I just I did I went back. I didn't. It didn't affect my my uh, curiosity. I guess I went back and I eventually got to make the jump. And the experience for the jump for me wasn't the best in the sense that it was great to jump out of a plane. It was super low, but I just remember having very little control of this parachute, like none virtually. Sure. Um, being the big military round, and I came down pretty hard, and uh, you know, classic PLF. And I just remember thinking, I don't think I have the interest to go up and do that again and again. <laughs> the complete opposite of virtually ever all my friends that are like that was it for me i'm like it was not for me i tell all you right. I, I came down and i felt like yep check the box move on right and i did and that was it for me so that was 1989 i made one skydive and i didn't think about skydiving for the next 15 years wow believe it or not yeah wow so, so- i'm off to the i'm off to the city i'm making a living i'm doing my thing you know in in london in the media industry blah 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 I take a career break and I'm a big fan of the idea of taking a break once in a you know, regularly during your, your working career to, to sure. go off and explore. I'm a very curious person. So I went to Australia, New Zealand, South Pacific, blah, blah, blah. And when I'm in New Zealand, I come across a drop zone and I see a tandem skydive. And I think, oh, that's exactly what I thought this was all about. Sure. I sign up and I make a tandem jump on the spot. And that was my moment where I'm like, that's it. That This is what I thought it was all about. You get to experience the free fall. You get to experience the canopy control and, and land beautifully on tippy toes. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm interested in. For sure. sure. I can't believe I missed it out all these years, but this is this is what I want to do. Sure. And that to me just made a, a, a huge pivot in my life when I got back to the UK and decided that I wanted to learn to skydive. So took a friend of mine, we went to Leo. And uh, that was the place where a lot of the Brits were going because the weather's, you know, it's challenging in the UK to learn. So I didn't want to do that at time, for right. sure. You know what I'm saying? I want to do AFF. I want to go. I want to go full on as fast as possible into this new sport that I've discovered. Right. And so we go down to Leo. And this is an interesting one. You'll appreciate this. My very first uh, AFF level one. Guess who the secondary instructor was? Oh, please tell me. Pablo. No. Pablo Hernandez. No, I am not joking. It was Pablo, and he looked like 12. <laughs> yeah, he right. He wasn't 12. He wasn't 12. He was close to it. I think he was like 17 or 18 at the time. But he was my, <laughs> he was my secondary instructor. And Brian Vasher was working at the, at the drop zone at the time. He was, uh, you know, doing canopy courses and stuff out there. So, yeah, I went out there to, to Leo for my first skydiving experience and got Pablo on my jump. So that was pretty funny. How but crazy is that? Other for a long time. Yeah, for sure. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know it's a small world and it's a very, very small sport, but I still, it never uh, it ceases to shock me just how small it can be. Yeah, totally. It well, really, a- so that was, yeah, what a wonderful coincidence, right? So I got to meet Brian and Pablo, who now are both, you know, my colleagues at Flight One all sure. these years later, right when I started 
skydiving for real this time, you know. So I got my license back in 2004 at Leo and um, came back to the UK and and just tried to find as much uh, skydiving related stuff to do as possible, including, and this will blow your mind, going to the Vegas tunnel. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Which I think you are familiar with. Um, I've been in there once or twice. <laughs> exactly. So that was super funny. I was I was doing a trip to because I was in media, so I used to go over to LA every every year. And I was like, all right, what's going on in the states? And skydiving, I know there'll be something going on. So I'm 34 jumps in, I find one of the few tunnels open at the time. This is probably 2005, I think, or so maybe 2004. Yeah. And I go fly in the in the I fly away, whatever it's called, Vegas. Fly away. Big, yeah, yeah. Big big ass clown suit, and yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, it doesn't help a damn bit when it comes to skydiving or modern no, modern tunnel flight, but it's a lot of fun. Goodness, yeah. So that it was different for sure. But I remember like being all over the place and falling out a bunch and thinking, well, that was interesting. <laughs> but it was cool, you know, because like there weren't a lot of tunnels around at the time. So that it was cool to to try something new for sure. That was always my favorite part about that was especially because I was an instructor at the tunnel, but a low time skydiver is we would get skydivers come in that sucked in the tunnel because flying and flyaway is not about flying your body, it's about flying the suit. No. For sure. You know, yeah, it's all yeah. about flying cloth. But for me, that was a great transition because I turned into a camera flyer. So I oh, kind of already knew how to fly wings, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? So yep. you're, you've rediscovered your joy for skydiving. You've gone out and made the tandem. You're still working as an adult doing the real thing that had to make it pretty easy though. Cause it sounds like you had a, a proper career going on. So I did being able to get into skydiving wasn't the financial burden that it is for a lot of people. True. And it's, 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 you know, like a lot of my friends that are in skydiving and have been since the year dot, you know, I have a lot of admiration for them because they've had to try and find a way to, to make that happen for themselves uh, in skydiving, which is, you know, very hard to do to, to create some kind of financial stability. Whereas I came from the other way around is like, I put my work in, I, I had that career and, you know, it's this, my friends use this phrase, we, we do this so we can do that, you know? Sure. And, and that was the case then. But at that point, I'm like, well, I don't want to do this so I can do that anymore. It's, <laughs> I'm done. This, like, what do I want to do with my life? And uh, at that point, I had to make a decision whether I was going to continue really pushing it uh, in my career or whether I was just going to do a complete pivot. And it just comes to this idea of what, what makes you feel fulfilled in life. And uh, I, I spoke about this the other day. It, time makes me more fulfilled than money, frankly. Sure. I think I was beginning to realize that. And uh, I decided it was time to change. And and uh, so I jacked in the job and moved to Eloy. <laughs> you got to love that. I mean, I mean, the truth of the matter is, I suppose most, especially working skydivers, have decided that money is a necessary evil, but it's not the end game. Like, uh, I don't totally. know too many skydivers that are about the money. They're about the money that they need to get that next rig or canopy exactly. or, or jumps, but it's just a yeah. means to an end. Yeah, money is the tool to generate more time in your life to be more fulfilled. And that's that was definitely a clear point in my life where I made a commitment to that and... Uh, and you know you when one door closes another opens and i'm a firm believer in that like i believe in my ability i can always go back and do what i did for a living and in fact i ended up doing that at flight one running the business so you know you can always fall back you can always fall back on them 
on on your on your past experiences if you need to but that you know that gives me the ability to be able to feel really good about moving forward and and exploring opportunities sure well that's another thing that skydiving tends to do though right is you're in the community and you are a skydiver but then they find out you have skills outside that and somehow you always Mm. get wrapped into using those skills somewhere else well but i was looking for that so i mean but i moved to the states um or or I didn't move to the States. I just came to Eloy at the time. And I was trying to find, at that point, I just wanted to be a full-time skydiver. So I I basically uh, became an instructor and a tandem videographer. And Mm. there was a trip to Australia at the time, but in in there in between, but that's maybe not the most important part of my story. Um, I I ended up in Rayford and I was working there as an instructor and a videographer. And and, uh, I think I realized at that point that being a full-time skydiver only is really hard. You've got to have your finger in an awful lot of pies in this in this industry if you're going to keep your head above water. Yeah. And it's of course very very weather dependent, even with working and coaching in the tunnel as well. So sure. at that point, I'm like, okay, I've tried the full on career in in the city. I've tried the full on skydiver. Maybe I need to find something that that's a happy medium. <laughs> and that's where working at Flight One came in. And it just so happened that I was lucky enough to meet. Uh, a good friend of mine, Annie Peterson, was dating this this dude called Shannon Pilcher. And <laughs> <laughs> Shannon uh, at that point was like, you know, they were looking to their their company had been going for like one had been going for four years, and it was really growing. And they but they didn't have the business experience that they were looking for to help o- organically grow the company in a controlled manner sure. with good uh, with good oversight and financial uh, analysis and all the rest of it. And so Annie introduced me to Shannon, and that's how it all started. Which How was again per, a perfect uh, timing as I was looking to move from Rayford and do something else. And sure. Shannon was looking for someone with exactly my skill set. Which, and there you go. It does seem to kind of happen that way. Uh, I don't, I, I suppose it happens in every walk of life, but it seems to happen so often in skydiving that shit just kind of works out. Yeah. Is, and so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm going to put a little bit more to that because I think it's not please. just coincidence. And I had this kind of clarity when I was ch- chatting with Eliana the other day and on, on, on our highlight conversations version of it. If you are there and you are visible and you make your, and you show up regularly, people start to see you and see what you can do. And then when the opportunities arise, you're there for them. You see what I mean? Oh yeah. It's not all just coincidence. There's a lot to be said for just showing up and, 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 and being visible. And so oh. I think we have, we have some impact in, in, in those moments of great karma as well oh for sure i mean i'd I'd like to say that i've been lucky over the years but the fact is i was also there you know i was making my presence known for good or bad one way or another you get some opportunities again positive or negative but uh yeah definitely now i wanted to actually go back to when you pulled the trigger on walking away from what the real world considers the proper career and the proper trajectory for one's life do you think that growing up doing stuff like the horseback riding and then becoming a skydiver do you think it makes it easier to make such a scary decision oh sure that i mean and i don't know if it's necessarily the sports side of it but i don't really have any fear of the classic idea of failure like yeah that doesn't really bother me like i'm just curious and i want to try something and i have complete and utter belief in my ability to be able to keep my head above water you know, I just I, I I think it's worth trying things you've never done before just to see what you can do. Sure. You know what I mean? And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that I've 
get that classic word pivot that we've all learned to appreciate in the pandemic. <laughs> it's, been a, it's, been a, it's been a factor of my life forever. And I just, I, I find there's far more fulfillment in trying new things and seeing, try, try it on, see if it fits. And if it doesn't, then, then go find another door to walk through, you know? Sure. Sure. Um, absolutely. It's a, that, to me, it's a freedom is a freedom of um, a certain mindset, you know? I completely agree. I mean, I, I I know that for myself personally, I can make decisions that for some of my friends are absolutely terrifying, nail biting, you know, weeks and months long processes that I just go, fuck, yeah, sure, let's do it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, part of that, I think, is just how we're wired. And then I think part of it is maybe not so much the sport, but um, the mindset that you have to get into to accept being a full-time skydiver. I mean, we have to make snap decisions and live with the consequences of the, of those decisions every jump. Yeah, for sure. And I think you just like, not everything works out, but it's not the end of the world. Right. I think a certain degree of perspective on life is, is important. You know, like I've certainly made some decisions and done some stuff that wasn't for me and I've moved on and that's sure. okay. You know? Sure. And I've created a life for myself where I don't have dependence or what have you. So I can make, um, I don't have to compromise what I want to do. And that's just the way I've chosen to live my life, you know, which is, a, I mean, I got to respect that. Now uh, I want to talk about swooping because when you and I yeah. met, this was 2013 and you were yeah. basically kicking it all off. So where did you just go? All right, this is my discipline. This is, this is my next step. Yeah. That's a really interesting point in my life for sure, because I just moved to the States I'd been competing actually in eight-way FS at the time, believe it or not. That was another life. Um, and a team of nine, holy crap. Mind you, I loved my time as an eight-way jumper for sure. I loved it, but it was a lot, you know. Sure. And I came to the U.S. I was working as a videographer and instructor. And honestly, at that point, I, I was beginning to be relatively known. And I recognized that my canopy piloting skills were not great honestly, mm. compared okay. to everything else that I was a really good body flyer, but my canopy piloting skills were mediocre. And I, as a, someone who was an instructor and a mentor, I felt like I needed to work on those um, to be able to be a good example to others. So sure. I started to work on my canopy handling skills and got better because that's what happens when you do the work. Right. And then in my classic kind of curious nature, I'm like, okay, what's next? done that let's what else can I do and I'm on a drop zone I see people swooping and I'm like I want to try that I was jumping a, a an, in, an inappropriate canopy at the time for swooping I think it was a pilot 132 or something like that <laughs> started trying to huck myself at the ground you know and uh, ended up uh, hip checking myself and I had to t I had to put myself into timeout <laughs> what yep. the fuck are you doing with your you know and then uh, I was like okay I need to t I need to take my own advice here which is uh, basically take it slow get coaching blah 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 border katana 120 far more appropriate and got coaching nice and that's when and I spent a solid 600 plus jumps on that katana and I learned pr to swoop properly all the way up to a 270 before I even moved on from that so nice. I I learned I learned my lesson I got away with it uh, at least that time I've had my injury since for sure, but I got away with it. And at that point, that's when I moved to Deland and joined flight one. And I was, it's always been a theme of mine, Dean, to be surrounded by people who are far more experienced than me. I'm a curious person. I like to learn. And I really like being the person with the least amount of experience. I'm totally sure. okay with that. I've never been someone who appreciates being a big fish, in a little pond. You can't grow from there. Right. Right. So I put myself surrounded by the best canopy pilots in the world. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the best instructors in the world. And they were kind enough to share their knowledge with me, which again is another way of showing how the example of others can influence you. And uh, I arrived in Deland and Rusty Best at PD invited me over to PD because obviously Flight One PD, PD Factory team is all very close and said, welcome to Deland. What can we do for you? Mm. And I said, thank you. I'll take a velo. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's when I moved on to a cross race, started getting uh, help from all of my friends and colleagues at, at Flight One. And that's where my swooping career started. That's fantastic. I love that yeah, your swooping career started by scaring yourself and putting yourself in a timeout. Yeah. I like, I like that. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a great mentality to put yourself in a situation where that could have been dramatically worse. I need to take a step back, think about it and figure out how to get better instead of going yeah. fuck that. I need a bigger parachute that scared me. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, you learn by your own mistakes and then you hope that others can learn by your mistakes as well. So I'm glad I sure. get a chance to share that kind of stuff, you know. I'll, well, I'll share another one just so please. other people, because I'm, you know, that people only ever see the 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 glory stuff. But boy, I've certainly had my share of, of crappy experiences of swooping too. Uh, the, 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 probably the biggest accident, not the biggest, but the, the most obvious accident I had was just after I downsized. So I'm in I'm in Deland and I'm flying. I just went from a Comp Velo 90 to a Comp Velo 84. I'm out doing doing my 270s or whatever. And um, it was a new parachute. I hadn't done the exercises to like to controlled exercises. How do you flare out of a turn? Understanding the toggle pressure you need to get out of a turn. I turned too low. I went to my rears. I realized I was still low. I went to my toggles and I didn't flare hard enough. And I clipped my knees on the way through. Mm. And that was the first kind of like big accident I had, I guess, as a swooper. And why? Because I downsized and I didn't go up and do the exercises to recognize the additional speed and the additional toggle pressure you need to get out of a dive. My mistake. Sure. So, you know, like all the stuff we preach, I've been there, I've made the mistakes and I've learned from, them, you know, so I, again, let other people learn from my mistakes. Well, you know, it's kind of funny, though. A lot of the swoopers that I've talked to, the common theme is they went big and hard and downsized crazy fast and, and did all the classic mistakes, but got away with it. And you hip checked yourself once and spent 600 jumps on a katana, making sure you had that shit dialed, which is a different mentality. Well, it's interesting you say that because I'm going to. I'm going to point out how my my world, my, my uh, framework is different, but had the same result. I still had the injuries, but I was a very conservative pilot. Mm. And that to me is actually an incredibly important point because I've had this with many people before. It doesn't matter if you consider yourself conservative or not in your progression, you're still at risk. Sure. You know? And so I've had that too many times where people are like, especially full-time skydivers that come to me and say, can you teach me to swoop? Classic. Well, I guess, of course I can. Are you, are you ready to accept the risk that you're going to put yourself in? Because, you know, you may well end up with an injury and you make money jumping out of planes or whatever. Are you ready for it? And for the Perth, I've had too many folks say to me, but I'm really conservative under candidate. And you know what? It doesn't make a difference. We are all at risk. Sure. And you've got to be able to accept that, do the work, and then recognize that it also could be you. So, that's the big thing right it's acknowledging it to yourself not to anybody else that's you can't, the hard part. You, you can't imagine being in in the corner yourself until you've actually done it Been there. like how could i screw up so badly or whatever and it's like you can because yep. we're all human and we all make mistakes all the time 
Yep. Yep. I remember uh, uh, one jump in particular that I've talked about on the podcast before uh, a mutual friend. Uh, uh, you would know Cornelia quite well um, yeah. was watching me do my little two seventies that I've done forever. And having fun with it and she decides that she's going to give me tips on how to do a 450 and i go up and i make it about 270 degrees through the 450 and i was like no, no. Yeah. there is not a chance i bailed out on it landed and she's like what the fuck dude and i'm like no you have got much bigger balls than me that shit's not <laughs> and so i mean i don't and i don't want to be like super i'm not trying to be negative about swooping i'm just being realistic and like at Absolutely. the end of the day it's, I think the first kind of couple of years that you get into swooping are the, are the, are the time when you're most at risk because you don't, you haven't seen the sight picture of what it's like to be low and to be in trouble. And certainly, you know, my, the dings that I've had from swooping have all been pretty much in the first two or three years. And, and they're sure. not, not so much after that, you know, when you, when you learn more and you're a bit more experienced, then the risk is always going to be there, but it's a little bit more mitigated. Through your own experience. Sure. Well, I mean, it's kind of that hunter jump wonder syndrome, right? You hit that sweet yeah. spot, at the beginning where you think you've got stuff dialed and then you learn how little you really know. Oh, for sure. It's <laughs> the power of knowing the power of knowing what you don't know, as they say. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've had uh, Nick on a couple of times and I mean, to hear him talk about some yeah. of the the horrendous accidents, you know, and the and the healing that's gone on. And this is a guy that's been at the top of his game for quite some time. Oh, sure. So you yeah. have to I mean, anybody that thinks it's not going to be them is just kidding <laughs> themselves. Yeah. And then, and especially now in sweeping, you know, with uh, the kind of speeds that they're 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 getting on the on the mutant. And oh. the, the the recovery arc of that mutant, what that looks like, it's a whole different ball game, and sure. that's the respect. What are the say What are the speeds <laughs> that are being hit now? They're actually close to hundred miles an hour across Jeez. the ground now. Like they were, they were definitely getting over hundred, I think, in the in, in the a vertical speed in 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 any in a normal harness. But as soon as you put the mutant on and you reduce the drag in the in the body profile, it's it's a whole different ball game. So, I mean, it's our, funny. I, I, our equipment has all the equipment is in sweeping has has progressed so much now. I wonder what they're going to do with the courses. I feel like the courses are now they're having to mitigate the courses to deal with the the higher performance of the of the pilots and the equipment. So I don't know. I think it's time for a, re, a redo. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, in the amount of time that you've been in the sport, and you and I have, have got a similar amount of time in the sport, it seems like the progression with canopies is just been exponential over the last yeah. ten years or so. It just it went for the longest time. The stiletto was the baddest fucking canopy on planet Earth, and everybody yeah. was flying a stiletto, and then it just took off like a rocket and then you know pd and nz aerosports have been fighting it out for the last 15 years yeah which is great i mean competition is the best thing for the pilots because oh, it yeah. provides innovation but in the time i was in swooping i think i did my first competition in 2011 on a comp velo 90 and i was jumping a peregrine 71 when i retired and so that <laughs> Everything in between there is like that's one hell of a change, you know what I mean? Like peregrines are freaking badass. Oh my god, they're so much fun. Um, but yeah, they're they're a, a, a handful for sure. But I I've I don't fly a mutant, you know. It's um it's sure. interesting, like the idea of being in a turn and literally being perpendicular to the ground, like you're standing coming down in those turns. That's that's a that's a, that's a whole other ball game, man. 
yeah, yeah I'll, stick no. with, I'll stick with my speed wings i'm, I'm quite happy to, to fly a supine <laughs> harness here in the mountains in utah and i love doing that but, um, yes yeah, there you go respect. I, like i it, said respect it blows me away uh, watching the canopies that are being flown nowadays and and uh, uh i I'm almost nervous to watch modern canopies because they fly in a way that I, as a skydiver, have never experienced. I've never flown those canopies. I was never current enough to be flying that stuff. Uh, so to watch yeah, it from the ground, it's, it yeah. blows me away. Currency is a huge thing. Like with, a, with especially with the Peregrines, Petras, whatever it is you're flying, HK2. It's. I remember thinking. If I wasn't, if I could went a month, like four weeks, maybe without flying my PI, I felt uncurrent on it. Yeah. Like literally a matter of weeks, you know, because it's such a high performance wing. Well, I mean, and, uh, but current, it, boy, it's fun. Oh, I mean, oh, it's gotta be, it's gotta be. And it yes, sticks, I, I, it, yeah, I completely so agree. Good. Currency has got to be, it's tops on my list of, of important, especially when it comes to canopy stuff. Short, short story. I actually, it broke my heart and maybe, Maybe a month ago now, I was in Nepal when they had Everest Skydive going on. And mm. PH, uh, who runs the show out there, I was helping out as my timing with my trek happened to work out real well so I could be there. And and uh, I was trying to help out where I could. And uh, PH turns to me as they're 30 minutes from sending a load and asked me, are you, uh, are you current? And I have had two neck surgeries and haven't jumped in a year and a half. And I went, you're not please tell me you're not asking me what I think you're asking me. And he's like, yeah. well, it would be a hop and pop from 22,000 feet, but yeah, yeah there's, there's a slot and I had to turn it down. Oh, oh I'm, yeah. That's smart, man. I mean, like doing a jump at that kind of altitude is that's uh, that's, nope. that's broke my, thing. broke my <laughs> fucking heart. Yeah. Yeah. Next this time, buddy. Next time. There you yeah, go. yeah. So I told him, I'm like, you know, I'm I've got that on tape now. I'm gonna make sure that uh, I I call you on that offer. Now, speaking yeah. of speed, you started speed skydiving. <laughs> yep. What what add, add it add it much? <laughs> right. I mean, uh, add that to the yeah, list. Right. Okay. All right. So the, okay. So the story behind that is uh, in 2017, um, I decided that I was going to I, I, 2017 was a big year for me. I did, I managed to go, I went to the world games for the UK wearing the UK Jersey for swooping. And that to me is always going to be like my, it was my biggest goal for sure. uh, in, in swooping is to be able to go to the world games. It's about as big as you can get when it comes to our sport, you know, it's about the equivalent of, a, of the Olympics. It was amazing. Sure. And I've been swooping and competing for like seven years or something like that. And I, and I, was beginning to feel that I wanted to move on um, just because it's such an amount of time when you train at that level and it's a lot on the body and everything. And it's like, you know, I think I've just hit the pinnacle of what I want to do personally. Sure. And I'm a curious person. I always want to learn something new. So I think, you know, I'm going to be done. So 2018, I took a year off and decided, I took that time to decide what I wanted to do and what I felt was my next challenge, as it were, or whatever. It's important to ask yourself regularly what fulfills you. Mm. Otherwise, you can end up doing the same thing year after year. And, you know, what, what we like to do changes over time. So I think it's really important to check in with yourself regularly and be like, am I on the right path still? Oh, yeah. And I got to that point in swooping where I'm like, I don't think this is me anymore. I love the community and it's super fun and everything. But but I think I want to try something new. Mm. So um, I ended up... <laughs> I think I turned up to nationals. One of my sponsors said to me, why don't you try something else? We still, we'd love for you to still to compete. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> let's, let's see what could I do. And 
I wanted to try something that I'd never done before. I didn't do, I hadn't done any vertical skydiving. I'd maybe done 50 head up free, uh, free fly jumps and that's it. Sure. So I'm like, if I'm going to do something, I want to do something that I'm completely novice at from ground zero and see if I can learn from scratch. Mm. Um, maybe let me try a vertical dis- discipline. How about speed skydiving? So that's really the how that came about. Okay. I've always known that I can dive to a formation really, really fast in big, in big way stuff, flat stuff, but steep. My, maybe that's something I could try and it'll, it'll be fine. It's fast, whatever. So I rocked up at my, nationals in 2019 um at in Rayford and got there a little bit early and it's like okay I'm going to put like 20 30 jumps in see if see what I can do in this tried a bunch of different clothes like I I did it in in my swoop pants I did it in a in a free fly suit and I was all over the place oh my god I was corking out left right and center I didn't know what I was doing (laughs) I had no idea and that was hilarious and I'm like well screw it the only the only way I really know how to do this is in a booty suit so I literally went up and I tried to go like not not on my head but steep in a booty suit and I was really smooth because I've got thousands of jumps at this point sure in a booty suit so I competed in speed skydiving nationals <laughs> in a booty suit I know it's hilarious isn't it with with the booties on and everything and but it's it's aerodynamic it's just got a little bit of extra drag with the grips and stuff sure but anyway it went really well I ended up getting a place on the U.S. team that's funny <laughs> and I'm like okay um what, what do I do with this? And so I asked myself the question, do I want to continue with it? If I do, what's the value? Like, this, these are the questions I ask myself. Is there value to me? Is there value to anybody else if I take this journey? Is it right. going to make me feel fulfilled? And I'm like, you know what? I think what I'd like to do is a journey which involves me trying to learn this new discipline. I've got a chance to go to the world championships. Let me mm. take that journey, throw the learning process at it and share the journey to show people what it's like to learn. Sure. And not to care about the failures along the way, but how can we embrace a process where we've got no idea of what the outcome is? The outcome's actually not even that important. It's like, I just want the journey. I want to see if I can learn something new. Sure. And what can I, how can I, how far can I get in a year? I went and knocked on um, one of my favorite drop zone owners' doors, uh, Doug Smith, up at Chicago Land Skydiving Center. I'm like, hey, Doug, I've got this crazy idea. What do you think? And he's like, I love it. Do it. Come and train with the drop zone, we will support you. And I moved to CSC up in Chicago and I trained my ass off for a year and then COVID happened. <laughs> it's like, ah! so suddenly this one year project became a two year project. Sure. Damn it. Talk about I'm hurry like, up and wait. Like, oh my goodness. And so then I went and knocked on another DZO friend's door, Jorge Alonso down at Skydive Carolina. I'm like, can I come down in spring and come to your drop zone? He's like, yeah, come on down. We'll do it. So between the two of them, love the fact that they supported it. I spent two years hucking myself out of a plane, trying to go head down, trying to learn how to go fast. And by the time I got around to going to Russia, I probably had clocked up about 450 training jumps. Wow. Which is a lot. My body hurt, I can tell you. Okay. And it wasn't all good. You know, like in the time I cork out, I put myself in a flat spin once. I gave myself whiplash. You know, this is all part, part of the journey. And this is why I want to share it. It's like it's not all good stuff. But persistence is what counts because ultimately it's a numbers game. So speed skydiving, the jump itself, like the 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 scoring window is seven thousand four hundred feet worth. It's over in like twenty eight to thirty seconds. Mm. Yep. So every time you go make a jump and you're only going really fast down at the bottom, maybe the last four or five seconds, that working time is nothing, right? So the only way you get better is by doing it again and again and again. 
And, and with the support of my sponsors and the DZs, I was able to do that and able to get to a point where I was doing pretty decently and, and went to Russia and performed pretty well. And I say performed pretty well, got the gold medal and got the, the world record. But the only reason I, I kind of play that down a little bit is because ultimately the results, uh, you know, the only thing that's important to me is competing against myself because you never know who's going to turn sure. up at the meet, whether you're going to win or not. So to me, actually the medals per se isn't, isn't about it. To me, the competition is, can I go to a world championship and do as well as I've done in training? Can I get sure. better? Can I, can I go faster compared to my own results? So um, yeah, we went all the way to Siberia in the middle of a pandemic. Wow. That was one <laughs> hell of a journey. I feel like everybody that went there, honestly, and managed to make it to Siberia uh, should earn a medal. Right. That was a trip. It was a trip. <laughs> and I mean that in every way, shape or form. And uh, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy, wonderful experience. Um, but then after that, the journey was done for me. Like that was the whole point. My goal was the journey and to share it. So came back after Russia and we got to do lots of wonderful media about skydiving and about speed skydiving because myself and my teammate, Kyle Lowpriest, both got the goal. So it was kind of like one of those beautiful PR moments, sure. you know, like the, the fastest man and woman in the world or that kind <laughs> of like the BS that comes with it. And we got to do all sorts of wonderful interviews, which helps the sport. Of but course. I was kind of, at that point, I was kind of done because the journey had been done. But the World Championships this year were in Eloy. You know, it's home turf, defending champions. And it was just another opportunity to wear the jersey one more time and represent. And, and so uh, we just did the World Championships in October. And uh, I didn't do a lot of training this year because I was doing other things, but managed to take the silver and stand up on the podium with a jersey, which is wonderful. Yeah, and then I retired. On. Nice. Dude. Dropped the mic, so I just retired from competition uh, after seventeen years. So, what was the what was the world record in Siberia? What was your speed? Uh, actually, you know what? Here's the interesting thing. I wasn't very fast in Siberia, um, but I still got the world record, and I think it was four hundred and forty three kilometers an hour. But I broke it again when when we came back to Arizona. When we came back to Arizona for nationals that year, because it's super fast in Arizona, both Kyle and I broke the records again. And my record back then was 459 kilometers an hour. And since then, my record has actually been broken by someone else, as has Kyle. So Kyle and I are no longer the world champions or the world record holders. But here's a really important point to make about that. We both love that. I love the fact that people oh, are yeah. out there doing oh, yeah. it, going hard. And like, I records are there to be broken. And I love the fact that people are, are inspired to go and break them. So Absolutely. I don't want to hold a record for very long. You know what I mean? It's great to have them, but. I want to see people go out there and go faster and they are crushing it right now. Like the, um, the world champion, the new world champion, Marco Hett went 420, sorry, 528 kilometers an hour. How, all right. Which I, just so, blows my mind. Uh, first off, that's insanely fast. I can't wrap my head around right. that really. So I'm not even going to try, but I will ask because I know very little about it. When are you starting to come out of that speed and how? Because, I mean, you're wearing slippery stuff for this, these kind yeah, of jobs. Yeah, yeah, how yeah. the fuck are you slowing down and not rip your head off when it comes time to deploy? Well, so we're definitely slowing down to normal deployment speeds. Otherwise, you end up with whiplashes yeah, yeah. In, yeah. In, in training. But it's it's like any a head down jump, I guess. You know how people flare out of the dive, you know, at the bottom. And so you take you've got so much vertical speed that if you still stay long but put some curvature in your body, a lot of that uh, vertical gets gets uh, translated into a lot of horizontal, right? Sure. Um, sure. But it's amazing how quickly you can uh, 
decrease your speed. Uh, so for example, we get out at about 13,000 feet. The scoring window finishes at about 5,600 feet. I've got both my audible set of five, five. That's the bottom of the dive effectively, or just below the bottom of the dive. As soon as I hear those go, I pull, I, I tighten my core, put my butt up in the air and start to generate a de-arched position. And that brings me out of the vertical dive and puts me into a massive horizontal uh, space, you know? Wow. And, and then you just, you have to keep putting the brakes on and, and keep making sure you translate that vertical to horizontal. And then I, I honestly, it doesn't take that long by, by sort of 4,003 and a half, I've slowed down and I could deploy. Well, I mean, that's still, that's... it took a while to get used to that. I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie, especially as someone who's not a head down flyer. I can, I remember when I started, I was really struggling with that for sure. And I remember sure. asking my, my good friend, Mel Firth, I'm like, dude, you've got to teach me how to flare out of a head down dive because I don't know what I'm doing. Right. You know, that was one of those areas as a belly flyer. I didn't know how to do. I had to seek out help. Sure. Um, but yeah, once, once, yeah, it's just with everything, the more you do it, the, the better you get at it, you know? I mean, that's still got to be so physically demanding. I mean, just coming out of a yeah. normal head down can be a bit demanding. But when you're talking about, yeah. you know, four five hundred kilometers an hour, holy shit. Yeah. That's something else. Yeah, definitely. Else. My shoulders were hurting quite a bit because, you're, you know, like when you do, you can just bring your shoulders in. So right. that was part of it. And then the other thing that actually I'd say was more challenging than anything is my neck. Um, because ultimately, and that's not so much about the flare out it's in the dive, it's Ultimately, it's a matter of where, what you do with your head when you're going at those kind of speeds. Not, I, I take a reference to the ground, so my neck is slightly tilted up, so it's not my head isn't directly in line with my body. Right. Folks that have a lot more of a free fly experience can look out at the horizon and get a really good sense of whether they're vertical or not. But for me, I always took a reference. So I'd say sure. probably 50-50 with the competitors. So, yeah, my neck, you can imagine being in a, in a dive at those kind of speeds when your neck is slightly out of alignment, per se. Right. Yeah, it hurts. It you know, hurts it's a lot. It's funny. We've beat the shit out of ourselves. And and I'm sure you're a lot like me in that to another skydiver, all the aches and pains make sense. But to non-jumpers, it's it's an evening's conversation to explain exactly how we fucked ourselves up over all these years doing something so often. And yeah. it's it's really difficult to, oh, well, why have, how come you've had surgeries and this and that? And show, oh, throwing a drug. What's a drug? Oh, oh shit. Here oh, we go. God, yeah. And it becomes that, that never ending sure, conversation. Yeah. So it's a it's 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 wild to try and put that into perspective, talking to a normal, I hate to say normal, a regular person as opposed yeah, to a skydiver. Sure. But you say to a skydiver, yeah, I'm just beat to shit because I've been jumping 30 years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so interesting you, you mentioned that, Dean, because I've had a lot of conversations over the last six months with friends and colleagues and, and other competitors about their physical well-being right now. And, you know, I our bodies are, are pretty beat up, you know, like um, most folks are telling me, you know, like I'm, I'm in pain for a, a lot of the time right now. And, and a lot of the conversations are actually surrounding how do we look after our bodies? Like, what are we doing for pain management? What are you doing for health? Like right. how many times have you had your knees injected with PRP? You know, like good grief, yeah. but it's, and then we don't really talk about it a lot. And I'm all about trying to be authentic about what it's like to be a full-time skydiver. Yeah. This shit really takes, takes a toll on your body. And like, and, and especially if, like I'm in my fifties, but the friends of mine that are in their late thirties, I mean, look at Pablo. Pablo's been doing it forever. Yep. He's in his, I think he's still in his thirties. I think you wouldn't guess with the gray hair on the man. Right. I, I want right. to say, I think he, he's not, I don't think he's even 40 yet. When I think about it, maybe he is, maybe I'm just being kind to him, but you know, like the, 
he's a really good example of the wear and tear of 20 plus years, 20,000 jumps, whatever, oh, on yeah. your body for someone who's still young. And it's a lot, man. Like you have to, you've just got to be aware of what it's going to do to your body and try and mitigate it as much as possible and just be careful, you know? Well, and it's and then also, you get, the, you get the anomalies like Pete Allen, who's like older than me and is just so fit. Yeah. And nothing phases <laughs> him. 35,000 jumps in or whatever he is. Like, I know. When I had him on the podcast, I, th- I, I we, it was just like this. It was just conversation, not video. And I'm just sitting there the entire time shaking my head, going, this fucking guy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's a it, good example of what physically, mentally, and 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 everybody wants to be. Pete. Oh yeah, absolutely. One, he's a wonderful human being, but he's a good example, you know. Well, and it's funny though, uh, physically, what you get used to, right? I mean, I don't know yeah. any longtime skydivers that aren't in dealing with some level of pain to some degree every day. Yep. But it's just but, that's just know, how it is. I don't even think twice like, about it. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do anything different. I'll just keep keep trying to mitigate it and have fun. You know, like yep. what's, otherwise, what's the point? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade it in for anything. Although it would be nice to know there was an old folks uh, skydiver home in our future, but that ain't going to happen either. Yeah, <laughs> but at least now, and then that's one of the reasons why I sort of retired from competition as well. It's like there's other things that I would like to do with my time. Sure. And I also want to give my body a bit of a break from doing the the extreme side of skydiving so sure. you know well, right now i get the i get the joy of um like on my mommy demo team highlight you know was, we get to go to these places and we do one jump and we get all the glory and all of the amazing feels <laughs> and that to me is the best way to be well <laughs> and thanks for your buck <laughs> i wanted to i wanted to segue into that because i mean especially uh lately highlight has been getting a lot of amazing press and doing some incredible yeah. stuff but how did you get started with highlight well, I mean, Highlight is the the brainchild of uh, Amy Schmelecki and uh, Melanie Curtis, both of which you've had on your podcast. I know Ray interviewed Amy quite recently too. Yes. And, and, and um, I might be repeating what they've said, but basically that demo team was put together to celebrate the centenary of the 19th Amendment back in 2020 and uh, by the Women's Skydiving Network. And so we all got together in 2019 um, in order to try and train to put the, a couple of really big demonstrations together to jump into places of historic interest during 2020. Mm. Um, and yeah, they put, they put the call out and a bunch of people uh, answered the call. We got interviewed and they put together probably the most extraordinary team in skydiving as far as I'm concerned. Of absolute uh, well, rock stars. Oh my goodness. Just, you know, honestly, I, sh- I shared this the other day with Mel. We, I remember when we walk, walked into Arizona, the first training camp, jump, uh, sorry, the first training camp we ever did, we walked into the the room and I look around and I'm just like, how, who, what did I do to get a seat at this table? Holy right. crap. This is the amazing. Who's who. yeah. The absolute who's who. And I mean, I've been lucky enough to have a few of the members on, but I mean, the, the concept is absolutely fantastic and it seems to have yeah. grown um, much larger than, I mean, maybe it was always planned to go as big as it is, but especially including now Project 19 that just happened. You said you were there cheering yep. them on. I mean, holy shit. It's just incredible. Here's the, here's the thing. This is what we get. I get asked a lot. Do you, wow, you guys are crushing it. Did you ever expect that you'd be doing what you're doing? The answer is yes, I <laughs> did. It's intentional. This is exactly what can happen when you get that group of people together who can work together, become more than the sum of their parts in a humble fashion. Nobody's ego is bigger than the mission. Yes, that's exactly what we intended. Which is awesome. It's, yep. I'm, and, it, it's just, and it is just the start. 
Oh, I, of that, I have absolutely no doubt. Believe me, yeah. I have a list of all the members that I'm trying to slowly tick off everybody that yeah. I get on the podcast yeah. because it's all such incredible stories. I mean, Eliana having her on was, she's obviously, you know, it's fantastic to just to hear the origin stories and how people go about pushing their limits and going on to the next thing and then taking yeah. those individuals that have succeeded going to something so much bigger and pushing it. I mean, yeah. holy shit. What can't you guys do? Well, nothing. <laughs> and I mean, th- here's the thing: like when you when I look at the group of people we have in that team, everybody brings a very specific skill set to the table, and so we're very complementary. You know, mm. like, and that's what's so good about it. Everybody has their own wheelhouse, their speciality, and and when you have that in an environment where people are happy to share and willing to share and ask for help, that's when you start to do incredible things. You know, sure, I've. There is no qualm about me turning around to, uh, you know, let's think, um, Allison. Allison's done a lot of jumps into stadiums. I was about to go and do a stadium jump into Dallas. I, I hit her up for help, you mm. know, and and uh, Eliana was going to have to do some really advanced accuracy into stadiums. She came and asked me to help her with some advanced accuracy, trying to land in a target in a tight area. Like we ask each other for help and we therefore become, we, we're sharing our knowledge with each other. And that's sure. why it's such an incredibly powerful uh opportunity for us you know to see what we can do and i have to say we just did a demo let's to to share a little bit about what the kind of things that we do and how amazing they are firstly we're so we're so lucky to have a platform where we can use skydiving as an outreach mechanism outside of skydiving you know what i mean like skydiving is effectively our metaphor for living these bold brave lives of our own design which is our which is our mission and it's a great way to touch people outside of skydiving so we just did our last demo of the year was into a, an event in Jacksonville, Florida, and it's called Sur- it's called Supergirl Surf Pro, and it's a whole weekend that's focused on on young kids doing sports. It has a it has a professional surfing competition, which is one of the very few for women actually sure. um, going on, which was super cool to watch. And then it's got you know uh, soccer, it's got volleyball, it's got a music festival, it's got a DJ lineup, like it's the whole thing, like a massive weekend event. We got to land on the beach after the soccer tournament, bringing in big flags, streamers, smoke, you know, and then we got to hang out, hang out with all the kids. We got to put flags around and take pictures <laughs> with them. And the kids are just, that's it, man. That's that's why we do it. Like interacting with those kids and the parents and what have you is everything. And they must- the most rewarding thing. They must just lose it. They absolutely must just freak totally. out when you guys are coming in. Everybody does, not just the kids. Everyone, they're like, oh, my God, look at that. And then when they realize that we're all women, blows their mind. You know? And, which is, it's it's an amazing and an incredible thing, but it's a bummer that it's taken this long and that people are still surprised that a bunch of women are doing something so amazing. Because oh, I'm all about it, though. I don't care that they're surprised. I'm glad that they are. It's all about <laughs> representation. We're making up for lost time, Dean. We're, in, we're into it. Fair enough. You know, I, I've been getting my ass handed to me in the sport of skydiving by women for so damn long that it's never been a question in my mind that the women compete just as hard, if not dramatically better than some of the men. So I, I guess I take it for granted because, I mean, I've started out getting my ass kicked by Craig and Tanya O'Brien way back in my sky surf days, <laughs> years and yeah, years yeah. and years ago when Tanya was just head and shoulders above anybody else with a board on their feet. And it never, yeah. she was just a badass skydiver. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is amazing. Well, so, yeah, so and- please go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. This, <clears throat> I mean, we're still pretty underrepresented in in skydiving, and mm. and I'm sure that will change, but it'll it'll take time. And when I think back to even over competitions, there were multiple competitions when it was just Cornelia and I were the only women in world championships and sure. world cups. I think the most I've ever seen women wise in swooping was maybe four or five one year, but mostly it was two or three. Mm. And but that's okay because it just it takes time, you know, and we'll just will keep representing and hopefully folks see that, that that women are doing it and they think that they can do it too. And, and I mean, that's on the skydiving side, outside of skydiving, seeing women do demos jumps is just a, a metaphor for the idea that women can do whatever is out there too. So, you know, change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't even happen in decades or sometimes in a lifetime. Sure. It took 70, 72 years from the, the beginning of the suffrage movement to when the 19th Amendment was ratified, you know? You just got to keep going out there and doing it and representing. Boy, for a Brit, you know a lot more about uh, um, the women's right to vote in the United States than a lot of women do, I bet, in well, the U.S. You, know, you, have to te- you have to take a test when you become a citizen. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I can almost guarantee you most, if not all, of my American friends and myself included probably wouldn't pass that test. <laughs> you, you, you're given 100 questions that you have to learn because they're going to ask you 10. I had so much fun asking all my American friends the the questions. It's pretty funny. I'm, yeah. pretty, I'm guessing it was pretty sad. <laughs> well, some of them were complex. Some of them were things like, uh, you know, name two states that border Canada, you know, so it wasn't... <laughs> all right, not, fair they're enough. Not all, they're, not all, they're not all complicated. So know? there's a few gimmies in there. Yeah. Well, yeah fair so. enough. Fair enough. So um, moving forward, you're still obviously yeah. you're you're coaching and doing all this stuff. You've uh, hung up the spurs as far as uh, competition goes. So what's next for Maxine Tate? Well, I'm definitely about trying to continue to collaborate uh, with others to try and uh, utilize what I consider my greatest uh, gifts to, to to try and move forward this idea of representation. Like a lot of um what I do for highlight is a great metaphor for what I want to continue to do. And uh, I'm super driven to use that platform with my teammates to continue to see what's possible, you know, and that, that to me is not out, outreach within the sport and outreach outside of the sport as well. Sure. So that's really where my focus lies. Um, and, you know, right now I'd say I'm probably leading more of a values based life than a, than a task orientated life, which yeah. uh, like the, a friend, uh, no, a friend, someone who I really, uh, my God, I wish he was my friend. <laughs> he's a great author called uh, Adam Grant, and he's an organizational psychologist. And he says, in this never-ending world where it's very unpredictable, you can't really make a master plan. All you can do is gauge whether you are leading a meaningful life. And that's pretty much where I'm at right now. So um, no big master plans to dominate, but everything I do, I ask myself the question of whether I feel it's meaningful and whether it fulfills me and adds value. And uh, I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, that's pretty rare air to live in right there. I, I think that yep. uh, most people don't get to a point in their lives where they're able to ask themselves those questions because they're too busy just grinding it out. So, I mean, that's a pretty special place to be. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. And I'm, and I'm good with it. I mean, it's a simple life and it's, it's a life full of fulfillment. So there's a whole lot to say for that's a simple me. life, isn't there? so so tell me people want to come train with you they want to come jump with you they want to sit and talk to you about highlight and all that how do they find out about you and what you've going on and how do they find out about the team 
Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, so to find out about Highlight, um, you can go to Highlight Skydiving, uh, which is on Instagram. It's on Facebook. It's on TikTok. Yep, you're never too old to be on TikTok, believe it or not. <laughs> we have a we have a YouTube channel. I am doing a monthly, uh, I don't want to say podcast. Well, I guess it's a podcast of sorts, very much like this, called Highlight Conversations, nice. which is came from a conversation I had with the team. I felt like we needed to have more accessible mentorship and share our stories like this so our people could understand and relate to it. So every month I, I am interviewing um, a member of my team. Awesome. And in fact, this two days ago, Mel actually interviewed me. Uh, so, and Highlight Conversations is not just going to be about me interviewing my teammates. It's going to be, that's a wider umbrella term. And I'm looking forward to interviewing people who are outside of skydiving as well to, to, to dive into these, these ideas. You know? Awesome. So if you want to, uh, for anyone that wants to see that is you can go to our YouTube channel, highlight skydiving, and you'll find it there in our playlist. Um, if anybody is interested in getting in touch with me, whether I am still a flight one instructor and a business partner. So that's still a huge part of my life. I feel very, very uh, grateful to have the gift of knowledge that I've been given to pass on to people to help them with their canopy piloting skills. And I still do that. And I am still loving going to drop zones and helping people with that. It's hugely rewarding. Um, and every now and then I'm going to be running a speed skydiving skills camp. I'm actually doing one down in Skydive City in, in Z Hills over the Christmas period. And I load organize still. So I'm going to be load organizing in Z Hills. I'm loading or load organizing in Costa Rica at the Tsunami um, uh, Exotic Boogie in Costa Rica. That's the best deal in town, just saying. Um, <laughs> So I'm out and about at the drop zones uh, enjoying and they can, you can get in touch with me either through Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, and I'm, I'm either, I'm either under Maxine Tate or Maxine fly girl and, uh, or, you know, hit me up on socials. I'm always here to help people. And uh, I get hit up a and people are always in my DMS asking questions and I'm here for it. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, for a semi-retired person, you're pretty damn busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say yes to the things I love doing, and I'm blessed to have a lot of things that I love doing. You know, so. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I'm glad that we were finally able to get this done. We've been yeah. talking about it for quite some time. You were going to talk to our good mutual friend, Zedj, but it's always a hit and miss trying to get people nailed down, especially with as busy as we can be. So I thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, dude, it's great to see your face. It's been a, it's been a hot minute, and I hope we get to meet in person again sometime real soon. Oh, you know we will. It's too small a world. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You enjoy you enjoy that winter in Finland, and I'll enjoy this beautiful snow up in Utah. That's a deal. That's a deal. Take care. <laughs> All right, buddy. Have a good one. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, and say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com by Pussfoot. That's right, head to Pussfoot.com, the Extreme Sports Collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com, Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com, check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now 
now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around. Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. 10 hours and 10 years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy.